Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll invite you to be part of this Bible study. Bring the Bible along. If you are driving, just uh, keep listening. We are still in the book of uh, Isaiah, and uh, the other week we were uh, talking about playing God, and we learned about the history of uh, Israel and Judah and the nations around them. And today we are going to talk a little bit more about the defeat of the Assyrians. I'd like to introduce our panel. Thank you, Brenton, for joining us. Absolute pleasure, Nick. We're looking forward to sharing the Word of God as a group. Joe, it's good to have you with us also. Thank you, Nick. It's always good to be with with the crowd. <laughs> Helen, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. It is just a delight. This is an interesting study we're heading for. And Lija, also good to have you. Thank you. I feel very blessed to study the Word of God. Len, it's our uh, facilitator for today. Thank you, Len, for uh, putting together this uh, Bible study, and uh, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for your welcome, Nick, and hello, listeners. We're going to make a start on this new study. You know, we've already covered six studies from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, This book is sometimes referred to as a messianic book of prophecy as it contains many prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus. The Old Testament is part of the whole of God's word, the Bible, and it's relevant today. Jesus referred to it often, and we must not pass it off as just a collection of myths and fables. It's worthy of our attention and has valuable lessons that we can apply to our own lives today through the historical people and events recorded therein. Last week we learned a bit about the Assyrians and Babylonians who played God, assuming their power was superior to that of the Creator. But they overplayed their hand and were eventually destroyed. This week we look at a specific incident involving the Judahite king Hezekiah and an Assyrian invasion. It's a fascinating study, and I suggest that you stay tuned and enjoy what we are going to share with you today. Before we begin, Helen, would you lead us and our listeners in prayer? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly, knowing that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're in control, Lord, of the earth, of the universe, and we, we thank you because that gives us hope, Father, when we go through things today in our life that causes us concern. Father, this study today is, is important. There's many lessons that we can learn. Father, this man, Hezekiah, as we see his life and his strengths and his weaknesses, I pray that it will give us cause to think about our own actions as well and our relationship with you. Please be with each member of the panel. I pray the Holy Spirit will speak through each one of us and be with all those, Father, that tune in, that as we study together, that we can come closer to you. I pray these things in the loving name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Helen. I think in your prayer today, you probably made a summary of what this whole study is about. The fact is that God is in control. Although we have powers that thought they were in control. But if we remember that God is in control, 
I think we've remembered a good thing. Well, Joe, I want to ask you about who was the king of Assyria from 705 BC to 681 BC. I think that's about 24 years. Well, he's he's a very important man in history. It was uh, King Sennacherib, and we know that from the inscriptions of the walls of his palace in Nineveh, uh, now known as Mosul in Iraq, I believe. And there is a, an inscription there that says, Palace without a rival. And this speaks of pride and arrogance of one's achievement and glorying in one's successes. Uh, just a little bit about Sennacherib. He was the son of Sargon II. Um, that relationship was a little rocky. Uh, Sargon went out conquering and he was a powerful warrior and Sennacherib tended to stay behind and run the realm. And he was more of a thinker, according to some sources. Sargon was a warlike man, and he thought his son wasn't up to scratch because he wasn't, you know, he was more of a tactician. But we know that once uh, Sargon II died, Sennacherib came into his own and proves that he is a strategist and a master tactician. He combined military genius with fighting prowess of the Assyrians. So he wasn't a pushover. He wasn't a weakling. And the Assyrians loved to record all their achievements, and they did this, as we know, in reliefs and inscriptions written in stone, if you like, um, which is a good thing because we now have records, and they were exceedingly proud of their strength, achievement, and failed to give glory to God, the only true God. Okay. Well, it's obvious that he was fairly proud of his achievements, and in his palace, as you said, he had this inscription on the wall, Palace Without a Rival. That doesn't mean arriving, it means without a rival. In other words, this is the the top of the tree, the very best, can't be bettered. Now, this reminds us of somebody else who was very proud of his achievements. Now, who was that, Legend? Of course, it was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon, and he was thinking that he was the best king ever, and he knew that, I mean, in he, he believed that there was nobody equal of him. Yes, well, he was responsible for building, I believe, as a gift to one of his wives, the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And obviously he was pretty proud of his achievements. By the way, he came later on. Sennacherib uh, preceded him in a different dynasty. But I believe that Nebuchadnezzar was standing up on his palace roof or something like that and made this comment. Is this not proud Babylon that I have made? So both he and Sennacherib were very proud of their achievements. Well, now we'll look at another king. This is the Judahite king, Hezekiah. Now, his father was Ahaz, who we've shared something about with you recently. But Hezekiah was a good king. And although Ahaz led the people into idol worship, what did Hezekiah do to worship God and his kingdom? Brenton, would you like to answer that? Yes, in Second Kings 18, verse 1 to 5, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read selected sections from it. I want to refer to verse 2, 
where it says, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his uh, father David had done. You will notice when you're studying the history of the kings of Judah, often it is recorded, and there weren't too many good kings, that they followed in the footsteps of their father David. We come to verse 4 because it's relevant then to our study this week. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For unto these days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtim. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were there before him. Now, this is interesting. It tells you a number of things. Just in these five verses, you not only learn what a good king he was. In fact, it is recorded by the writer of Second Kings that there had been no one like him after him and certainly no one like him before him. In other words, he was a truly outstanding king spiritually and morally and every other way. But I found it interesting, this comment about um, this bronze serpent, that they were worshipping and offering incense to. I think it gives you an insight, Len, into how far Judah had fallen from the worship of the true God. Back in Numbers 20, when they were being bitten by snakes and Moses was told to make this bronze object and hold it up, they were to look at it and live. Now they've gone a significant step further. They're offering incense to it and worshipping it. And, uh, of course, that's immediately breaking one of the commandments. So I think chapter 18, verse 1 to 5, give give you an insight into what uh, Hezekiah did to try and reform the spiritual worship of Israel. But it also gives you an insight into how far they had fallen that they were actually worshipping a bronze snake. Now, when Sennacherib starts um, deriding Judah a bit later, and talks about um, God telling him to uh, to capture um, Jerusalem, real and uh, that uh, what had actually happened with um, Hezekiah is that he had cut down all these groves and centralised worship. Um, the cunning strategy that was used by um, Rabshakeh was to say that. Um, you have offended God by cutting down all these groves and centralising worship. In actual fact, by what I've read in verse 4, no, he wasn't doing that. He was cutting down the groves to false gods and turning the people back to the worship of the true God. So I think that's a very important facet, Len, as we go forward in our study today. All right. Well, Hezekiah definitely showed his hand here, and he was a good leader because he led the people into righteousness rather into error. Well, I guess the Judahites at that time were vassals of the Assyrians. As long as they paid their tribute, they would be okay. But what did Hezekiah do with regard to this tribute, uh, Joe? We know that... Often when there, was, when there was a shift of power from one leader to another, from a king to his son, there was, this was always an opportunity for the vassal states or the states that had to pay tributes and um, taxes would find a, you know, they think, oh, this is our opportunity to rebel. 
And this might have been an, might have been one of these occasions because we know that Hezekiah did indeed pay tribute to Sennacherib and the other kings. So, and, and indeed Israel had and Judah had as well and Hezekiah had. But, um, we know that as time went on, the first confrontation, I think, is uh, captured in Second Kings eighteen thirteen to six, sixteen, where Sennacherib is showing his hand and he demands a heavy tribute, and Hezekiah basically strips he, he strips his country of gold and and gives them an amazing amount of money and goods, and of course, then then there's a second second confrontation which lowers the morale of the people and then there's the final confrontation and so as we see these develop hezekiah's faith in god and trust increases he's more and more put into a corner where he really needs to trust god he's stripped his kingdom of everything he can possibly give you know sanacra what more can he give and then you know sometimes this is like us sometimes we're really Rather than trust, trusting God from the very first, from the very beginning, we exhaust all our other avenues. We try this and that. And then eventually when we are cornered, we think, well, maybe we should pray about this. Maybe we should ask God to help us. And so I think that we see this progression, this growth, spiritual growth. Now, Hezekiah was a good king. There's no doubt about that. But he himself also needed to grow in his trust in God. And so we see this developing as time went on that he trusted God more and more. All right, Helen, you wanted to comment? agree with Joe. You know, when the opposing powers came in, that was a chance for them to take a military and economic advantage over its rivals. And, um, you know, I thought it was interesting that Hezekiah, to my way of thinking, um, he acted with very great courage when he rebelled against this mighty empire to whom his father had submitted. He placed his faith in God's strength rather than in his own, and he obeyed God's commandments in spite of the obstacles and dangers that from a purely human standpoint looked overwhelming. I love the text where it says in 18 verse 6, he remained faithful to the Lord in everything and he carefully obeyed all the commands that the Lord had given to Moses. So, you know, he was serving God as his master, not two masters. You know, in this particular little incident, I believe is a very important lesson for us. In fact, I, this is what I referred to earlier as a result of Helen's prayer, that when we realise that God is in control, we would be best to place our trust and confidence and faith in him. Now, I know some of you, like myself, have had to face some disasters or some big problems. Is there a time when you completely trusted the Lord? And what was the outcome? Helen, I know you've had some very exciting experiences in your life. Would you like to respond to that? Lynn, I can think of many, many, many. And when I, when you just said the word disasters or big problem, at the time we're going through them, everything seems to be a big problem. But in looking back over my life, and I think I may have shared this before, but looking after over my life, the one thing that sticks out and very big in my life was um, the big earthquake we went through. And, um, I remember when it hit, and we were in Medang, 
and it went under the fault line went under our flat I never gave a thought of oh you know we've got to run out of here or um um what's going to happen or fear or anything straight away I guess because it come part of my life I prayed now I thought I was praying to myself but apparently I was praying out loud according to my husband at the time and um I just prayed for for God to be with us and I just trusted him regardless of what happened. We were told later that we had 10 seconds and the, the roof would have caved down on us. But it was very interesting because that prayer it, that just settled me. It didn't and I've noticed this before in a big disaster area when I've just turned it all over to God rather than trying to think of my ways out of it. I feel that amazing peace then. It just seems to overflow. and you know that it doesn't matter what happens god is with you you know we may still have some pretty hard times to go through but through it all god is there and i can attest to that very very much the outcome yes well i very much learned that you can't hold on to anything or anybody except the lord in the middle of disasters or any time yes i'm not going to uh, refer so much to disasters helen's touched on that very eloquently I would like to say this to our panel and also our listeners. In my situation where I am here in Mount Gambier, I have four churches to look after. I have a very very large parish, so to speak, and I have come to realize in the short time that I've been here so far how much I need the Lord. I'm totally dependent upon him. I do a, a tremendous amount of driving. and Arcourt, Millicent, Kingston, Bordertown, all over the place and um I'm constantly talking to the Lord in prayer even when I'm driving and just asking him to that his will will be carried out wherever I go and I believe we have to apply these lessons lend to our individual lives Helen has touched upon it I think we need to apply them even when disasters aren't looming we just need to apply them to recognize that whatever work we do for the lord unless it is blessed by the holy spirit it's going to be ineffective so more of the holy spirit less of us and i believe hezekiah actually aptly presents this where he says a bit later lord please save us we can't do anything i think that's um, the motto that we need to live by day by day so this is a very important issue as far as what we're talking about today all of us have to face difficult times of one sort or another it's good as you just heard from Brenton and Helen and I could tell you stories and I'm sure the others could too that when we put our trust in the lord then we can be confident that the outcome will be okay well the assyrians didn't care much for the fact that um Hezekiah decided to withhold the tribute. So how did they respond to that, Nick? I'm going to read uh, from uh, Isaiah chapter 36 verse 1 Len. It says, "Now it come to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sanherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them." It's interesting here Len it was mentioned before about the tribute and uh, how uh, the king of Judah rebelled I came from a place where we are many times in that position to pay tribute um, I come from Romania and we are many times attacked by the Ottoman 
empire. And uh, sometimes because of the lack of leadership in Romania, we were subdued. We, we had to pay some tribute. But what I realized, looking back in history, never a leader or a king will rebel if he wouldn't know that he have capacity to resist the oppressor. In this case, I think was quite interesting because Saharib and his army, they were overwhelming. But still the king, uh, Hezekiah, rebelled. I mean, when I say rebelled, he started to understand who's on his side. And we are talking about the living God, about which these pagans or these people knew about it. And that's what, uh, you know, the Turks, I uh, you know that when they used to come and the Romanians were victorious over the, the Turks, they will say a word which in Romania, you know, we say, Gyaur, Gyaur, they will say, these are the Christians coming now, you know, their God, it's with them. The Turks, as, uh, as we consider them as pagans, they knew that the Romanians, and I remember one king, uh, Stephen the Great of Romania, he built every time a monastery. He believed in his God. Now, I'm not saying here that um, whatever happened in this context is because of how the king approached the thing. I believe there are a number of things here. God had a plan. God used the Syrians to discipline his people. But at the same time, God is respecting his promise and his word. And whenever we need him, whenever we trust in him, God says, turn to me. He will invite us, turn to me, and I will show you my grace and victory. This is one thing which I like to draw as a lesson for us all. We may walk astray. We may, you know, miss out on the, the presence of God in our life. But the invitation is to turn to him and he will give us victory. All right. Well, Assyrians attacked all the fortified cities. They are the cities with walls around them in Judah, except the capital, which was Jerusalem. But it looked like they were going to probably head towards Jerusalem and destroy it. So in an attempt to stave off destruction of Jerusalem, Brenton, what did Hezekiah at first do? What he did at first was to pay a tribute to Sennacherib. I find this very instructive, uh, verses 14 and 15. I would tend to put a counterpoint to what we have stated earlier on. I believe that um, he's actually making a strategic decision here, but to buy a bit more time by giving uh, or paying tribute to Sennacherib again, but I also tend to see it lean on the other side of the coin because a little bit further down when he comes to actually attack uh, Jerusalem, if the strategy was to pay Sennacherib tribute in order to keep him away from Jerusalem, it was unsuccessful. I tend to think that maybe this is a, an occasion where his hold on God wasn't as strong as it could have been um, because later on he says, Lord, help us. Here he's basically buying Sennacherib off because we know that later on in our study, um, the Rabshakeh, when he comes to the walls of Jerusalem, states that um, 
Sennacherib has taken 46 walled cities, which would be obviously the cities of Judah. I just tend to think that um, the strategy here in paying him tribute after having previously rebelled against him, it seems to me, Len, that um, maybe his hold on God wasn't as strong at this point as it could have been. Later on, we find, and remember, all of this took place in the 14th year of his reign. Now, later on, we find out that he got sick and God added 15 years to his life. He only reigned for 29 years. So all of these things are taking place in the 14th year of um, Hezekiah's reign. I just think uh, there's a lesson in here for me, and I guess a lesson for all of us as we um, share this with our, our listeners, that sometimes our hold on God isn't as strong as it could be. Later on, Hezekiah certainly demonstrates his hold on God is strong, but I just wonder, I'm just wondering uh, on this occasion whether it was the right thing to do. Ellen? And with um, Brenton on on that one, because when you read that text in 2 Kings 18, it's interesting to know that not only did he say he would pay it, he said he'd done wrong, but he used the silver stored in the temple of the Lord and he even stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's temple and from the doorposts that had been overlaid with gold to give to the Assyrian king. Now, that temple was so important to the children of Israel it was it just amazed me that he actually took that from the temple so i agree with um brenton there i think there was a lapse there well he showed a lapse there if if he just said yes i will pay it and he got the the gold from the palace treasury and that was it fair enough but he actually took it from the temple which i thought was really interesting okay well it sounded like he tried to redeem his debt if we could put it that way to and discourage the Assyrians from attacking Jerusalem. But they, he didn't just stop there. What else did he do, Joe? He took time to fortify the city. It tells us in Scripture that, you know, he altered the court, stopped water flowing outside the city so as to not, as he puts it, the Assyrians come and they find much water because what does an army need? <laughs> Needs yeah. food and water. And so... Um, he's putting steps into place to make it a bit of a hostile or as hostile environment as he can for the um, the oncoming army. It says also that he built up the wall that was broken. So obviously he's done some repairs and raised it up to the towers. So he's extended the height and then he's built another wall outside there. He's obviously fortifying very effectively and he's made weapons and shields in abundance um, and he set military captains over the people and he gave them encouragement. Now, I really like the encouragement that he gave, and he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria nor before all the multitude that is with him. And this is the key, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. Now, we remember that prophet Elisha, he said the same thing to the king of Israel, didn't he? And they woke up one morning and Dothan was surrounded by a huge army. And the servant says, alas, master, what are we going to do? And and Elisha prays that the Lord may open his eyes because there are, you know, many more with us than with them. So it's a a wonderful thing, thing to remember in a crisis that you could do all your fortifying, do all your preparations, but um, remember that there are more with you than against you. Yes, 
I think Hezekiah acted a bit like a sports psychologist. A lot of sports teams have a psychologist. You can do all the training and do all the preparation, do have all the skills, but unless you have a, a belief that you can win, all those other preparations might be of no account. And so here Hezekiah is also telling the people, we can survive this. We have got in our hand. Now, Joe, you want to add something here? Yes, I, I agree with you, Len, on that matter. But uh, with with uh, sportsmen and sportswomen, they tend to have a belief in themselves. They need to believe in their own ability to be able to win. But here we have, we are not believing in ourselves, but believing in the high God of heaven, that he is going to fight our battles and we shall hold our peace. Yes. And Len, I just want to add on what uh, Joe was saying that uh, I think this is very important to, to really to point out again here. Even though the king did everything what he could, building up the cities, do all he needed, you know, in terms of uh, armor and uh, to organize his military, in the end, his trust was in God, not in his own capacity. And this is the thing now. Sometime we can leave aside the other things and just say, God will deliver us and do nothing. That's not wise either. God encourages us to do everything what we could do and trust in him, allow him to work out his plan. In this um, context, I believe we discussed a bit earlier about uh, where he was maybe missing out or uh, lack of faith or whatever it is, even when he gave uh, to the Assyrians that uh, tribute and even give more than probably they asked. I don't know. I don't know what was uh, the, the context there with the, with the gold and stuff from the temple. But, you know, he did what he was asked. I mean, he was under their jurisdiction to say so. He did what he uh, supposed to do. Are we not called to pay our taxes? Now, sometimes we may not be happy <laughs> of doing that, <laughs> you know, uh, but we are still paying our taxes. Anyway, I believe he's, uh, he's quite a wise king in many aspects and will come maybe later on to where he was making big mistakes. And he, by his trust in God, go, God shows to him who is in charge. Yes. Now, Ledger, I know you have something you would love to share with our audience today. Yes, we observed that Hezekiah did a lot of preparation to confront uh, Assyria. So, as it was mentioned before, um, he strengthened his fortifications, equipped and organized army, his army and uh, increased the security of Jerusalem water supply. But just as important as military and uh, organizational leadership, Hezekiah provided spiritual leadership as he sought to boost the morale of his people at this frightening time. So the, this Hezekiah, king of Judah, had determined to do his part in preparing to resist the enemy and having accomplished all that human in, ingenuity and energy could do. He had assembled his forces and had exhorted them to be of good courage. So Hezekiah worked on two plans. He trusted in the Lord, but on the other hand, he did his part and let God do his part. So this is an example for us. Yes, that's very good. I really like that. Well, as a result, 
What did the Assyrians do, Helen? Well, it tells us that in 2 Kings 18, verse 17, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, Nevertheless, the king of Assyria sent his commander-in-chief, his field commander and his chief of staff from Lachish with a huge army to confront King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. I'm just going to pause there for a moment because sending the the commander-in-chief, the field commander, the chief of staff, was like sending a vice president, if you like to put it in today's language, a vice president, secretary of state, and the head general of the army to speak to the enemy prior to a battle. You know, all these men were sent in an effort to impress and also discourage the Israelites. But it goes on to say the Assyrians took up a position beside the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool near the road leading to the field where cloth is washed. And when I look into that one, it tells me that they came very close to the wall of Jerusalem, close enough that the people, when they they took the cloths out to wash or bleach them, that it was within the distance they could get to. Close enough, and we're going to learn this as we go, close enough that when, when um, they could yell at the people on the walls could hear them. So, you know, I thought that was interesting, and, and Joe made reference to that aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool. If they got there and it was empty, I wonder what they would have thought. Was it before or after that he emptied the aqueduct? I don't know. Perhaps, Brenton, you might know that. But I, just, I think this just tells us that they were there to discourage and, and to literally threaten. Now, we don't know whether they intended to attack or whether it was just a psychological ploy. But then before they actually made an attack, there was some um, propaganda. And this is part of war too, you know the propaganda, the dropping of leaflets during the Second World War to tell the Germans you're finished and the Germans dropping leaflets to tell the Allies you're you're finished. So there was some propaganda and the Assyrian commander-in-chief, and he would be called the Rabshakeh, acting on King Sennacherib's behalf, sent a propaganda message to Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. And this message is recorded in Second Chronicles 32, in Second Kings 18, Brenton, would you like to summarise this propaganda attempt? It's a very interesting one, Lynn. Um, it's a combination of truth and what I would describe as um, what, what he's actually saying here is um, in both of those passages, and I won't take the time to read them, he's basically saying, look, you're a weak lot. You can't do anything. Don't trust your God that uh, Hezekiah is telling you to believe in. Hezekiah is building your uh, confidence up falsely. He is trying to encourage you, G you up, uh, to believe that God will look after you and um, and uh, take care of you. And he's saying, don't place your confidence in that. And then he gives a recitation of various kings and things that he has defeated and he says none of their gods were able to help them, and your God won't be able to help you either. Now, there is an eerie similarity to a person by the name of Nebuchadnezzar uh, about a 100 years or so later who says in Daniel chapter 3, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand before he throws the three Hebrews into the burning fiery furnace? Now, what you learn from all of this is that the strategy is, number one, to dishearten you. 
Number two, to take your eyes off of God. Number three, to recognize your hopeless situation. And number four, to surrender without further ado to Sennacherib. And Hezekiah counters this by actually stating to the people, don't listen to them and don't take any notice of what they're saying. And uh, I believe that when we're faced with situations today where we don't seem to have the answers, we need to have a singular focus. The singular focus needs to be, Lord, I don't know what to do. I acknowledge that I don't know what to do. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I do know one thing. I trust you, and I believe you'll bring me safely through it. And I think this is where Hezekiah was trying to place the focus for his people to encourage them to simply trust the Lord their God. Yes. The Assyrians not only attacked Hezekiah through propaganda, but they even went a bit further than that, Nick. Would you like to quickly share how they insulted God himself? Yes, Len, in Second uh, um, Chronicles chapter 32, if I read verse 16, it says, Furthermore, his servants spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And also further down in verse 19, this is very interesting, and they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. This is quite interesting here to compare this. We can trust sometime psychologically in things which may work for us. But you know, sometimes can work, sometimes not. You cannot compare the living God, the creator of the whole universe and sustainer of the whole universe, with things which are at your hand, which sometime you may benefit of or help you in a way or the other. And it's interesting that the author of the, uh, the passage here in the Bible says that he spoke against the God of Jerusalem as he spoke against the gods of the earth in which men trust, which were made by men's hand. And this is, I believe, very important for us today to identify in whom we trust. Are we trusting in abilities? Are we trusting in uh, whatever is around us or are we trusting in the living God who knows everything what's going on? Yes, well, uh, this Reb Shekhar and his other commanders or whoever he had insulted the living God, the yes. creator. Absolutely. I think that's a very good plan to start insulting God. We'll talk a bit about that later on. So it looked pretty hopeless for the um, people in Jerusalem so what did Hezekiah and Isaiah then do, Helen? I believe we see the faith coming through. When I thought back to what Hezekiah had said when he was encouraging the people back early in 2 Chronicles 32, he had said, there is a, a power far greater on our side. We have the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. And so I believe instinctively, you know, when they heard that God was being mocked, both King Hezekiah, it says here in verse 20, then King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to God in heaven. Now, I I, I agree here that uh, when Nick was saying, you know, we have got someone stronger and we need to cry out to the Lord. I'm reminded of Job, if I could just bring Job in here, that when he was attacked by Satan, 
And in Job verse 1, it said, you know, one day they were feasting and then it got bad news. And verse 16 says, while he was still speaking, another messenger came. And verse 17, while he was speaking, another me- third messenger came. And then verse 18, and they all came with, with sad news. But I, I love it when, when I actually see in verse 20 in Job chapter 1, it says, Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. Here's another example that just like Hezekiah and um, Isaiah cried out in prayer to the God in heaven. We too can do exactly the same. Trust God even in the middle of, of some of our disasters or trials and problems that we have. Trust God. Take it to him and he will deal with it. He is stronger than anything and anybody on this world. And again, let me say he is in control. Did God answer their prayer, Joe? Most certainly did. We can read these in Second Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 37 also has an account of this very same thing. And basically what both accounts tell us is that an angel came down and cut down. Basically, there were 185,000 dead soldiers. There was a massacre outside the walls um, that the people found when they arose early in the morning. Now, we don't see that recorded in the uh, inscriptions. We don't, you know, we don't have any, they wouldn't want to tell us about it, would they? How would they, would they really want that recorded in stone, that they really were whipped, if you like? Now, interestingly enough, Herodotus wrote about this and um, he attributed this, you know, the 185,000 soldiers died to field mice, a multitude of field mice. I don't know if yeah. anyone else came across yeah. that. You know, descending upon the Assyrian army, devouring crucial crucial material such as quivers and bowstrings and leaving them unarmed and causing them to flee. Others say that perhaps this was some sort of septicemic plague or whatever, but but we know that there was a a devastating defeat and that uh, when Sennacherib, who wasn't there at the time, but when he returned to Nineveh, that um, he he met his demise. Some say that he was actually killed by his two sons. Um, that this was a massive blow to the greatness of Assyria, you know, without a rival. This was definitely a big blow. God answered that prayer in an amazing way. And so he does with us. When we trust in him and we put our faith in him, he does answer our prayers. We don't always get the expect, you know, what we want when we want it, but we can be sure that God is listening and he is looking after our needs as if we were the only person in the planet. What was significant, and we didn't read it, Len, and I'm trying to find it quickly, it says he returned shamefacedly to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, which was Nisroch, some of his own offspring struck him down with a sword. Just a couple of things there. God is always able to abase those who are proud. There is a remarkable similarity, Len, between this and the example of uh, Nebuchadnezzar mentioned in Chapter 4 of Daniel. Uh, Just in regard to Sennacherib's demise, it didn't happen the week after he got back. If you study history carefully, it was a number of years after he returned from this battlefield defeat, and it all boiled down to the fact that his eldest son had been executed by the Babylonians in a previous thing, and there was a fight going on as to who was to be the next ruler after Sennacherib. And uh, Sennacherib's second son uh, was bypassed for one of his other sons. 
And um, there seems to be a possibility that his second son and maybe another son were the ones who actually assassinated their father and escaped to the land of Ararat. So the, the bottom line of all of this in summary is this. God is able to abase anybody who gets too proud. It's not just pride in your own achievements. These men were actually abusing the God of heaven, as we've touched on earlier on. They're actually blaspheming the God of heaven. And God responded in no uncertain terms. The Assyrians had insulted God. Legend, what is the third of the Ten Commandments? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Yes, so the commandments say you honour God's name, and here were the Assyrians blaspheming of God's name. I want to bring this up in a modern context. In what way do people misuse God's name in this day and age, Nick? Well, and there are... Uh many ways and from different places you know to different places people use different words but where i come from almost every second word was a, a swearing word taking god's name in vain i'm more concerned of the things which we can use every day and we may think that they are just normal things like just oh gee you know or uh, my lord and things like that you know we are encouraged through the bible to use God's name very reverently, you know, I mean, in our prayers, when we, you know, communicate with God, but not in everyday, you know, thing, you know, just to mention the word of God in various ways. I believe this is a, a bit of a habit, which uh, people don't even realize how much insult, how much they take uh, God's name in vain. Yes, it goes through me like a knife when I hear somebody, if they hurt themselves or something unusual happened. Jesus Christ! I think to myself, this is taking God's name in vain. Yeah. Mm. Len, another one is, oh, my God. It seems oh as though God. every American is born with, oh, my God, on their left. Yeah, and well, they, they it's, it's come into our culture as well, and it is used flippantly time and time again. I tend to think that this is more, it's less about swearing, I believe, and it's more about uh, just taking God's name lightly, flippantly, or uh, casually uh, without recognising the awesomeness of who God is. Well, it leads me to believe Satan's got to be behind it because why don't people sort of say their own family name or an enemy's name or something, but it's always against Jesus, isn't it, and yeah. against God? Good point, Helen. All right. Well, now let's come back to Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem who put their trust in God. Brenton, if you read Psalm chapter 46, verse 1 and 2, this was a psalm that was sung, and there's some words in there that I'd like you to comment about. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. I think the important words there are God is our refuge and strength. There's evidence from what we've studied and discussed so far as a panel that indeed Hezekiah had made God his refuge and strength and that the people of Judah had made God their refuge and strength. This is a great psalm 
it's a psalm that was used by a person by the name of Martin Luther, who most of our listeners probably have heard of. Martin Luther, it is said, often would say to uh, his offside and lengthen when uh, things were going particularly bad spiritually for them and it seemed as though all the forces of the organised church of the day were uh, gathered against him, he would say, let's read this psalm or sing this psalm. And, of course, out of it we have uh, a song today in our hymnals called uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Is this just nice words? No. I believe it's referring to an experience that people had. Maybe there is some value in sharing this. When we go through hard times, maybe it would be good to have a look at that psalm, have a look at the music, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and sing it because I tell you what, it's a rousing piece and it certainly helps you to understand that God is in control and he's still looking after you. Sennacherib and his commanders might insult or defy the Lord, but in the long run, who has the final say? God has the final say. Nobody's power, nobody's wisdom can match that of God. Well, later on, there was the threat of another Assyrian attack, but now at this time, as Brenton pointed out, it was about halfway through Hezekiah's reign, something unusual happened to Hezekiah. Helen, would you like to talk to us about that? Yes, I would. Isaiah 38, 1 to 3 shares with us these words. It said, about that time Hezekiah became deathly ill and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to visit him. He gave the king this message. This is what the Lord says. Set your affairs in order for you are going to die. You will not recover from this illness. When Hezekiah heard this, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have always been faithful to you and have served you single-mindedly always doing what pleases you. And then he broke down and he wept bitterly. I'd just like to make a comment here. When God says, set your affairs in order, I think we need to um, honour what God is saying. He knows the future. He knows that if if you're going to continue living, you may end up going off the rails or you may not. He knows what is best for each one of us. But in in Hezekiah's defence, he did pray to God about it. Now, I imagine Hezekiah was not only distressed at the fact that he had a life-threatening disease, but he was probably also distressed because he had seen God in action, how that God had protected him and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he was very distressed. Well, I think it must be apparent that God was aware of his distress, and in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 5, Isaiah has another message to deliver to Hezekiah. Joe, what was that? Yes, he says, Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will add to your days 15 years. So this would have been a wonderful answer to his prayer. He would have been very happy. Some commentators who think this was God's will that the Hezekiah, this was time for Hezekiah to, to get his affairs in order, like I think has already been alluded to. But also others say that perhaps Satan trying to get rid of a good leader, hoping that there will be another week, another Ahaz that will come into power, always trying to undermine God's people one way or another. He failed to destroy Jerusalem. 
but now he's attacking the king because then maybe he could get a weak king who wasn't as faithful. So, yeah, I guess we're, we're about to discuss this. Yes, Brendan. Just thinking of uh, his response, he did have the opportunity to give glory to God and he didn't do that, but other people have done the same thing. And um, I think the message there is pretty simple then. Sometimes a great victory is followed by something that is not so good. I'm thinking of Elijah. Elijah was on Mount Carmel. Fire comes down from heaven. What greater miracle could you have than that? The next day, a heathen queen threatens him and he goes for his life and says, Lord, take my life. I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. I think there's a bit of pride coming into Hezekiah here in the sense that he has been shown such mercy by God of saving Jerusalem and saving his nation. And now he has had the evidence that God has healed him. We tend to do this. We sometimes tend to have a high spiritual experience followed by something that is, shall we say, a downer. And I think he's going through that here. It does bring out, and I know we're out of time, but it does bring out in another place that God um, left him for a time to test Hezekiah to see what his response would be to his healing. Some people might say, well, does God change his mind? Does God say something and then do something else? Could one person perhaps comment on this? Hezekiah turned to his God so many times. So when he heard the commander of Assyrian speaking words of insults to God, he was very hurt and he went to the temple and he turned to God. He said to God, see, listen to all the words that they insult the, the living God. So uh, he turned to God in prayer and uh, God answered him. And also when he got sick, he turned to God again. So Hezekiah's life was based on God, on God's assurance, on God's advice, on God's plan. He didn't live of himself. He lived with God. Yes, this shows me that God has compassion for the plight of human beings. And he obviously had compassion for Hezekiah. Now, God's not in the business of changing his mind. He gives provisional promises. If there are certain conditions that we are to meet, then that promise may be fulfilled. But if we don't meet the conditions of that promise, then God is not bound by it. But God is moved with compassion as he sees the state of human beings, including you and me. Well, later on, Babylonian envoys came to see Hezekiah, the one for whom God had performed a great miracle. And there was this envoy of Babylonians. They came over. What did Hezekiah do? Helen? It was interesting, Isaiah 39 two. He really showed his true colours, I believe, but like Nebuchadnezzar, he um, showed them his treasure houses, his armoury, his royal treasures and everything he said that I own. Does this not sm smack of pride? I believe it did. And, and if I could just quickly quote, it said, Pride and vanity took possession of Hezekiah's heart and in self-exaltation he laid open to covetous eyes the treasures with which God had enriched his people. The king showed them the house of his precious things, silver, gold and spices, precious ointment and all the house of his armour and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Not to glorify God did he do this but to exalt himself in the eyes of the foreign princes. 
So what did he fail to do, Brenton? He failed to give glory to God. By showing them everything in his house and acknowledging that, yes, he had been healed, and yes, we skipped over the issue of the sundial going back 10 degrees, he was really actually saying, um, look at me, look at me, look at uh, all the things that I've got. He was taking the focus totally off of um, acknowledging the true God and putting the focus on what he owned without recognising before these envoys that all that he had owned came from God in the first place. Because earlier in our study, it said that God was with Hezekiah and he became very rich as a result of God's blessing. So I don't find any evidence here, Len, at all, of him acknowledging the true God in any of this particular issue. And this is a big lesson here for us, you listeners and us as panel, that we give God the glory and we consult him when we're in difficult times. We have to stop. We'd love to keep going, but time is against us. Brenton, would you um, just pray for us and the listeners as we close today? Certainly. Father in heaven, I pray that first and foremost we may learn the lesson that those who are valued in heaven's eyes are those who are humble and meek and not full of themselves. We live in a world, Lord, where it's all about me, 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 me. And we've had examples in our study today of Sennacherib. was all about him. Nebuchadnezzar was all about him. And even at times about Hezekiah, unfortunately, at the end there, where it was all about him. Lord, help us to acknowledge that everything we have and everything we are and ever will be, we owe to you. May our hearts be full of gratitude as we have studied this subject today. May we go from here knowing that God is with us and God will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that we are safe in your care and that we can move forward in faith for whatever the day brings for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you for being with us today. I invite you to join us again when we are going to look at a very uh, comforting Bible study. Comfort my people. Until then, may God Richly bless you. Keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.